episode 106 of the State of the Old Republic podcast was originally recorded on October 27th, 2020. It's the State of the Old Republic podcast. This week on the show, Game Update 614 is live. We've got Conquest Changes, Legacy Ignore, The Feast of Prosperity, and a whole lot more. Also this week, it's 2020 here on Earth, but what year is it in the Old Republic? I'll have an answer for you coming up later. Finally this week, I'll finish what I started And I'm talking about my story project that began almost two years ago. And with that, it's time to make the jump to light speed. And cue the moron. Welcome to episode 106 of the State of the Old Republic podcast. I'm your host, Ted, and as you heard in the opening, I have another great show lined up for you today. Good news, it's another week and another podcast. Better news, Game Update 614 is now live. Bad news, I haven't had a lot of time to play with it yet. We do have a long list of patch notes, so I'll give you my hands-on thoughts next week. But for now, let's look at all the changes available in the Old Republic as of now. Okay, from the top, here are the main highlights for Game Update 614. First up, Conquest. Uh, Points have been rebalanced, there are new objectives, and there are changes to the level brackets. It's a giant list of changes, something you're going to hear me say a lot today. There are a ton of new objectives, most surrounding planetary heroic missions. I did notice that there are now some objectives for running Star Fortresses, which I think is kind of cool because I do like to run those on occasion. The changes look pretty good, and I don't imagine it will have a huge impact on how you go about running Conquest, but if it does, let me know. New Augments have been added to the game. They are legendary quality, with an item rating of 300. There's a new Cybertech schematic used to craft these Augments. That schematic can be learned from a Cybertech trainer. It's not something you need to farm. And this schematic requires two materials obtainable in Master Mode Operations and Ranked PvP. The notes don't say if you get both materials from each activity or if one comes from Master Mode Ops and the other comes from Ranked PvP. But as you can see, you already have to be doing the game's hardest content in order to get what you need to craft these augments, so good hunting. And if you find yourself squabbling with your friends over who gets materials and new augments, well, there is now the Legacy Ignore feature to shut them out of your life. According to the notes, Players will now be able to ignore a character's entire legacy. This option will also block those players from entering the blocker's stronghold and override the possession of any type of stronghold key owned by the ignored player. The legacy ignore list is shared across a player's legacy. Now, the legacy ignore was just one change to help combat player toxicity. Another thing you may have encountered are changes to the deserter penalty. Chris Schmidt hit the forums to discuss the latest changes, and here's what he wrote. In unranked matches, the 15-minute deserter lockout will still apply for leaving a match. 
In addition, the five-minute lockout penalty for being vote kicked will still apply. In ranked modes, both solo and group, there are a few changes. First, as previously discussed, vote kick has been removed in these modes. Next, the deserter lockout timer has been increased to 20 minutes for declining a match or leaving early the first time. Over time, if a player continues to decline or leave matches, that lockout timer will increase until they hit the maximum threshold. If a player hits the max once, all declines or leaves for the rest of the week in ranked modes will use the maximum lockout timer. An important change here to note is the lockout timer prevents queuing for all PvP activity. Unranked, solo ranked, group ranked, and galactic starfighter. In addition, all deserter lockouts will be account-based. Chris went on to say, Some of the philosophy behind this change is to still allow a smaller penalty for one-off accidents such as, such as missing a queue due to a bad internet connection or stepping away for a few minutes. Where the penalty increases is when we can begin to assume the likelihood of an, of an attempt to manipulate the queue or gain an advantage in ranked matches is greater than the likelihood of missing several queue pops on accident in a row. This is based on data and observation of past player behavior, so these changes to the game rules are an attempt to change that behavior and ultimately provide a more fun and safe place to play. This is a pretty good explanation, and I've always been a believer that the rules of your game should be designed around eliciting the behavior that you want for, from your players. And in this case, the old rules weren't doing that, and they needed to be changed. Now, along with the major changes, there were a host of quality of life changes, bug fixes, and more. Here are just a few of them. Changes to Squelch have been made across the galaxy. Squelch players will no longer be prevented from talking in guild, group, or ops chats. Additionally, players may be squelched only on the origin world and still able to talk in other planet chats. Players who use the random mount button before logging out are no longer on a mount when logging back in. In addition, the button will no longer remain in an active state upon logging back in, which could cause a you-are-already-mounted error in some cases. Players below level 75 will no longer receive tech fragments as rewards as intended. Players can no longer avoid exhaustion zones. Whisper and add friend options can now be used from the guild roster for players with a special character in their names. The duration of all in-game pop-up notifications has been shortened. Players can now use the Command Guild Chat Zone column to change data they're viewing in the Who tab of the social window. The Mission Reward window will now automatically pre-select the item when there is only one item to select. The Preview window will now appear when using Control left click over the die item in the Stamp Die menu. The temporary ability of our applied to players will no longer disappear after a player logs out and then back in. The personal starship dummy now scales to level 70 when using reverse bolster modulators as intended. Training dummy health modulator items are now preventing players from benefiting from guild perks even if they gain the guild perks after applying the health modulator to the training dummy. Mailboxes on Imperial player ships are now displayed on the map if the player has enabled Mailbox Display from the main map options. You fixed an error which could cause guild strongholds and flagships to be unavailable. The stronghold arrival point can now be set by other characters from the same legacy than the stronghold's owner. Enemies will now be less likely to open combat against a player with a stun attack. 
daily heroic missions on the heroic mission terminal are not correctly now correctly state those missions can be repeated daily instead of weekly. Tano Vic will no longer fight unarmed in the trooper's class mission, Battle of the Gauntlet, if he was equipped with a weapon before starting the mission. Kuat Drive Yard's missions will no longer grant the max level XP to lower levels as intended. The Introduction to Conquest mission will now automatically be granted to players at level 10. Dr. Loken is now accepting the Rackle DNA canister for trade in a kindly old monster mission. The Zyost world boss Worldbreaker Monolith now drops spoils of war loot as intended. And finally, Bioware made a variety of changes to improve the class mission and planet mission experience throughout the game, including reduced requirements for several missions and bonus objectives. They adjusted how or when missions are available to give players better agency in their mission choices. Some missions will no longer be marked as exploration missions and will now always appear on the map. And my favorite, added terminals in the final room of large areas so that players can easily travel back to the entrance of those areas. Now, I don't know what the definition of a large area is, but I'm hoping it's any cave or building that you dreaded entering because you knew you were going to have to fight your way all the way in and then again all the way out. I always hated those because when you enter, it's fine. You're usually on a mission, so as you make your way down, you're completing mission objectives. By the time you reach the end, you're done with your missions, but now you have to fight your way back to the entrance because everything has respawned. Thank the Force for this one. Now, there were a few class changes. Most of these are typo corrections and minor fixes to bonuses. The most notable change here affects Guard, where a 50% damage penalty will be applied while guarding allies. This affects Jedi Knight Guardians, Sith Warrior Juggernauts, Jedi Consular Shadows, Sith Inquisitor Assassins, Bounty Hunter Power Techs, and Trooper Vanguards. And the last item in 614, of course, is the new in-game event, Feast of Prosperity. Help Gaborga the Abundant and Duba the Magnanimous restore the cartel's influence during the three weeks of the event. Each week, a new story mission will unlock to progress the event storyline, leading to the climactic choice during the third and final week, Gaborga or Duba. This event will run from October 20th through November 10th. I'll get to that this week and give you my thoughts next episode. And for a complete list of all the changes in 614, be sure to check out the official patch notes at swotor.com. know that it's 2020 here on earth how could we forget popular refrain at my office these days is what a year this week has been so yeah it's 2020 24 7 until it's not but what about star wars the old republic what year is it how long has this journey been for our heroes and how old are some of our favorite companions now these are just some of the questions that players have asked over the years and have attempted to piece together well, now we have an official answer, as earlier this year, Charles Boyd popped up on the official forums to set the record straight. 
Now, before I tell you what year it is, and I'm going to give you that answer almost straight away here, I did want to set the foundation on how years are defined in the Old Republic. An in-game year roughly equates to a year here on Earth. As Charles Boyd wrote, For simplicity's sake, I use the in-real-life year rollover, December to January, to mark the in-game year rollover. I admit this is arbitrary, but in my opinion, it's just one more area where the vagueness of time in Star Wars doesn't actually hold up to scrutiny because it was never meant to. What month was the Treaty of Coruscant signed? Was it coincidentally the same exact month as the Battle of Yavin thousands of years later? Wouldn't there be times where event A could be in 13 ATC and event B is in 14 ATC, but they're both in 3640 BBY or vice versa? That way lies madness, so let's just all pretend Malgus was crashing the Jedi's New Year's party and deceived and not dig deeper into this hole. Now you heard me mention the terms ATC and BBY. Those are designations like our BC and AD, and they stand for after the Treaty of Coruscant and before the Battle of Yavin, respectively. I'll use the ATC designation from here on out. So on to the big question, what year is it? Well, the answer is 27 ATC. And how do we know this? Well, a big key is the Battle of Ilum. According to the Swotor Encyclopedia, which I have not read, the Battle of Ilum starts near the end of 13 ATC. Some have that year as 12 ATC, but Charles is going with the Encyclopedia as the official date. This places the start of the class stories, and hence the game, at 10 ATC. And with that in mind, the SWOTOR timeline looks like this. From 10 ATC to 13 ATC, we have the start of the game and the class stories. And then at the end of 13 ATC, we have the Battle of Ilum. 14 ATC, we have the Black Hole, Terror from Beyond, Section X, and everything else that was released in 2012. In 15 ATC, we have Rise of the Hutt Cartel and Oricon. In 16 ATC, we have the Tython and Korriban invasions and the events of Shadow of Revan near the end of that year. In 17 ATC, we have Zyost, Sacrifice, and the first chapter of Knights of the Fallen Empire. And then from the rest of 17 ATC to 22 ATC, we have our lovely Carbonite Nap. 23 ATC, we have the events of Knights of the Fallen Empire Chapter 9 and the first wave of Alliance Alerts followed by the rest of Knights of the Fallen Empire and Knights of the Eternal Throne. In 24 ATC, we have the battle for Iocath, Umbara, and Capero. And then in 25 ATC, we have the Nathema Conspiracy and the attack on Osis, which of course kicks off the renewed war between the Republic and Sith Empire. In 26 ATC, we have Hearts and Minds and Onslaught. Which brings us now to 27 ATC, where we have the task at hand. Now, Charles went on to say, although our next story release will be following it by several months in real life, it will be intended to occur within a couple of weeks of task at hand. More of a shift than I would normally like, but real life has intervened, as we all know. As you can see, other than our five-year carbonite nap, our heroes have barely had a chance to let our blasters cool off. And this has raised some questions about the true length of time for certain events, especially surrounding Knights of the Fallen Empire and Knights of the Eternal Throne. Charles said, I've seen people here and elsewhere saying that it feels wrong in both directions. 
Some, like you, feel it's too fast. Others feel it couldn't possibly take that long based on how the chapters themselves feel. I suspect timing here will never please everyone, but in your specific case, I would personally look to the fact that the Alliance is made up of staggeringly powerful and skilled people who, until it was formed, were unable to combine their efforts. Once they could, it doesn't seem like such a stretch to me that things took a turn within a year. Now that we know what year it is, the question has come up about how old everyone is. In terms of our characters, well, that's really up to us. The year tells us how much we've, been, we've aged, but not how old we are. In the case of Companions, there are some established ages in the SWOTOR Encyclopedia, but it's not clear if those ages are based on when the game started or when we first meet them. Here's what Charles had to say about that. I'm actually not sure what everyone's intent was when we put that together. There were numerous authors on the encyclopedia, and all class writers were consulted, but I forget if we made this specific distinction when presenting the information. Giving it a quick look, I'm going to say that the companion ages in the encyclopedia are probably intended as their ages when they're recruited, not at 13 ATC. For example, I don't think Kira is intended to be younger than Nadia, but Nadia is listed in the encyclopedia as 22, while Kira is listed as 20. And this is kind of interesting when you consider we've been working with some of these companions for 17 years now. Though it doesn't show up in the game, some of these companions have gone from being young adults to approaching middle age. So you're probably wondering, what's the point of all this? Is this something just for the role players out there? Well, this information just might lead to something tangible in the future. Here's what Charles said. I consider this a rough draft for a more official release for the future. So stuff might change or get a bit more detail later. But for now, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts so far and in giving everyone something tentative to work from until that more official piece can be hashed out and the correct venue for it identified. In-game somehow, on our website. Picture of me looking crazy in front of a crazy dry erase board drawing of it all. In any event, I think a visual representation will certainly be preferable down the road. I'd love to see something in-game, a nice visual added to the codex, perhaps. I'd also love to see the journals of Nostarel brought back to life. For those that don't know, there was this, there was a cool series of short videos created to explore the events that led up to the start of the game. One other interesting question that came out of this was, what about different timelines for the Sith Empire and Republic? To which Charles said, I think that would totally make sense but I'd personally prefer not to introduce even more complexity into all of this. Furthermore, a new calendar system would constitute new lore and therefore be something to discuss with our Lucasfilm partners. It's not something I could simply declare in a forum post, so I wholeheartedly support role players using that idea, but I can't make it an official thing at this time. I just found it fascinating to hear that this is something they'd have to clear with Lucasfilm, not something they could just do on their own. Own. And there you have it. The current year in the Old Republic is 27 ATC, and we've been adventuring in this corner of the galaxy far, far away for 17 years. A staggering nine of them in real life.
listened to the show from the beginning, then you'll recall back in 2018, I started a project surrounding the class stories. The class stories were written as a collective story, and I wanted to see if there was a natural order of events that you could play out in the game. Now, I only got as far as Bell Savis and never got to the end, and I always felt bad about that. So I'm now determined to finish what I started. That said, I'm not going to pick up where I left off and have you chasing down old episodes to get caught up. Instead, I've decided to start over, and by start over, I mean replay each segment so we're all on the same page with this. I may add some additional thoughts along the way, as well as revisit the bonus series, as it's easier to replay those now. One thing I wanted to mention was something Charles said about the class stories. One player asked about the timing of the class chapters, suggesting that the prologue in chapter 1 begin in late 10 ATC and conclude in late 11 ATC, and that chapter 2 begins in late 11 ATC and concludes in late 12 ATC, and that chapter 3 begins in late 12 ATC and concludes in late 13 ATC, to which Charles responded, that's how I'm parsing it, though I want to emphasize that I see that as a general timeline for all of the class stories collectively and not as a written in stone interpretation of each and every one specifically. What I mean by that is some chapters of some class stories definitely wouldn't have taken exactly one year, some perhaps a bit more, others significantly less. Since I didn't write them all, I'm loath to go back and assign more specific timing to them unless something comes up that requires that specificity. But if we look at them as a collective group of stories, it seems reasonable to say that they all generally start and end around the same time. Interesting to hear. So now, without further ado, here is the Starter Planet segment, which originally aired in episode 66 on January 16th, 2018. While we patiently wait for Bioware to deliver us new content for Star Wars The Old Republic, I have been spending my spending time creating my own. Last episode, I talked about wanting to create a brand new legacy of eight characters, one of each class, and play them like they're part of one giant story. I wasn't sure if and how I was going to do this, but I've now started and decided that I would present my findings each week here on the podcast. Now, my goal isn't to create a canonical version of the story. It's to create a chronological version of the story. I've gathered all sorts of information and potential tie-ins and order of play. And what I'm doing is following the guides and taking lots of notes to see what pans out and what doesn't. It's a little experimental right now. But when all is said and done, I hope to have a definitive chronological playthrough for each of the class stories, companion stories, and planetary story arcs. This is basically the holy grail for Altaholics. With that in mind, I have created my Super 8 and have begun the journey. What I want to do today is share my thoughts on the four starter planets, Tython, Ord Mantell, Hutta, and Korriban. I figured that with the starter planets, there wasn't any restriction on where to start, and for the most part, this is true. So for no particular reason, I chose to start with Tython, then Ord Mantell, then Hutta, and finally Korriban. I just like the idea of opening the story with the Jedi, continuing with the Republic, and then shifting to the Empire, ultimately closing things out with the Sith. Overall, there is very little collision on each of the planets. Take Korriban, for instance. I found that it hardly matters who arrives 
first, and you can comfortably play the Sith Warrior or the Sith Inquisitor all the way through before starting the other. My preference was to start with the Sith Warrior and do the intro and get uh, him up to the Academy and then start the Sith Inquisitor and get her up to the Academy. While there is no direct story tie-ins, there were a couple of things uh, worth paying attention to in the Sith Warrior story. The first was this reference to Lord Renning. Is this everything? Everything Lord Renning was able to obtain, yes. Then run back to your master in the beast pens before I cut you in half. As a result, I had the Sith Warrior do Lord Renning's quest and not the Sith Inquisitor. And then there was this moment towards the end of the Warrior story where you have a run-in with an alkalite named uh, Clemril. He failed the trial to collect shards from the tomb of Tulak Horde and is now trying to steal yours. One of your options leads to this conversation. I'll never become Sith. Unless I return with the shards, Beres will have me killed. Well, why don't you flee? Get off the planet. Give up trying to be Sith. You can't get off Korriban without official clearance. I might be able to hide in the wilds, but I wouldn't survive long. Then be a man and try to get the shards again. I... I can't go back in there. I just can't. I've heard of a mad hermit in one of the tombs who welcomes failures from the trials. Maybe I'll seek him out. This is a vague reference to Spindrel. Spindrel is an old Sith living in the tomb of a Juntapal. He takes in fallen acolytes, gives them a chance to redeem themselves, and he is part of the Sith Inquisitor's first trial on Korriban. Other than that, the two stories move independently. In terms of side missions, I had the Sith Warrior clear out the Chloroslug eggs, and I mentioned the mission for Lord Renning. I had the Inquisitor deal with the Tomb Raiders as well as the captured Jedi. I did not feel obligated to do all of the side missions here. I didn't see that as essential, although I did have exploration missions turned on for all of my characters. Ward Mantell was another planet where the stories moved independently. The only thing I felt was mandatory was to start with the trooper because in the cinematic after the walker has been hit, you see the smuggler ship come in for a landing as the trooper prepares to exit the walker. Clearly, the trooper is on planet first. I did the intro missions and got the trooper to Fort Garnick and then switched to the smuggler. Shortly after the smuggler lands, you have this conversation. Here's your payment for making this run, Captain. As soon as I have those blasters, you'll be free to fly. Skavik, we've got a big problem. Separatists took over the local air defense cannon. Oh, slow down. Slow down, Corso. What are you talking about? They deployed some kind of remote control stations, hijacked the cannon's targeting computer. Damn Separatists just destroyed an incoming Republic transport. The Republic transport that Corso mentions is clearly the one the trooper was on. Other than that, you can comfortably play the trooper and smuggler stories all the way through without needing to switch back and forth. Regarding the side missions here, pretty much anything that involved the military I gave to the trooper. Missions that involved helping people or retrieving things I gave to the smuggler. Moving on to Hutta, this is one where I thought there would be a lot of overlap given that the bounty hunter and imperial agent are both working for Nemro the Hut. This is surprisingly not the case. I would recommend starting with the bounty hunter first and making sure the bounty hunter finishes the story before the imperial agent does. This is mainly due to the fact that the imperial agent story centers around taking down Fothra, Nemro's main rival. At the end of the Bounty Hunter story, it's safe to say that Fothra is still a threat. 
In fact, you could easily make the case of playing the bounty hunter straight through before even starting the agent. I chose to get both started before sticking with the bounty hunter. As dirty and polluted as Hutta is, the stories are surprisingly clean. Nemro is the only character that overlaps the two stories, and the agent only has one face-to-face -face meeting with him. The rest of the time, Nemro appears via Holo. As far as the side missions, anything related to helping Nemro or hurting Fathra, I gave to the Imperial agent. Anything where there was a bounty or a person of interest, I gave to the bounty hunter. So this brings me to Tython, the final starting planet. Even though I started it first, I wanted to talk about it last because it's the planet that has the most issues. I definitely recommend starting with the Jedi Knight, as I'm pretty sure the Flesh Raider attack starts just after he arrives. It's still happening when the Jedi Consular gets there, but it appears to be in progress versus just starting. I started with the Knight and got him to the point where he is sent to the Jedi Temple, meets with Satil Shan, the Jedi Council, and then Orgus Din. At that point, I switched to the Consular and got her to the Temple, and I continued with her for a bit longer. As far as switching back and forth goes, I'm not really sure on this one. The main issue with Tython is the Jedi Council meetings. The Jedi Knight meets with the Council twice, once in the beginning of the story and again at the end. The Jedi Consular only meets with the Council at the end of the story. However, she has run-ins with two Council members, Seal Bakarn and Jarek Kaden, about midway through the story. So let's talk about why this matters. When the Jedi Knight first arrives at the Jedi Temple, he meets privately with Satil Shan and then attends a meeting of the Jedi Council and here is part of that meeting. Everyone, this is the Padawan who saved our people in the training grounds. This is Master Kiwix and her extremely vocal Padawan, Kira. The other masters are transmitting from distant worlds. It's unfortunate our numbers are scattered. The masters that Orgus Din refers to as attending off-world, they're at the meeting via Holo, are Tolbraga and Jarek Kaden. This is important because in the Consular story, Jarek Caden is not off-world, but is on Tython. As I mentioned earlier, about midway through the story, having retrieved the first blade from the ruins of Kaleth, the Consular returns to the Jedi Temple and has this conversation with Seal Bakarn and Jarek Caden. Hello again, Padawan. I'm glad to see you well. Master Seal Bakarn, I was there to greet you when you first arrived. Being greeted by a member of the Council is hard to forget, Master Seer. Interesting. Protocol was never a big focus of Yuan's curriculum. This is Master Jarek Caden, another of the Jedi Council. At the end of both stories, the Knight and Consular attend meetings of the Jedi Council. In the Knight's meeting are Satil Shan, Orgus Din, Bella Kiwix, who is now off-world on Coruscant, and once again Tol Braga and Jarek Caden, who attend via Holo. When the Consular meets with the, with the Council, the attendees are Satil Shan, Seal Bakarn, and Jarek Kaden, who is there in person. Absent are Orgus Din, Bella Kiwix, and Tol Braga. As you can see, it's hard to pin down the timing of it all, and these meetings are difficult to reconcile. One option is both the Knight and Consular arrive on Tython at roughly the same time. The story flow would be this. The Jedi Knight arrives first, takes care of the Flesh Raiders, is sent to the temple by Orgus Din, meets with Satil, and then meets with the Council, and then meets with Orgus Din. At this point, probably a step or two earlier, 
the consular would arrive on Tython, retrieve the holoprojectors, go to the temple, and then go to Kalakori vi Village, return to the temple, and then stop. You would then finish the Jedi Knight story and then pick up the consular story, having the consular go to the ruins of Kaleth and return to the temple and meet with Seal Bakarn and Jarek Caden. And Caden at this point has no longer off-world, but has returned to Tython and is able to meet with the consular in person. You would then, of course, finish the consular's story. Tython was tricky, but maybe that's the way it's supposed to go. You could also argue that Jarek Caden is just on and off-world a lot, and it just so happened that his on-world visits never coincided with the Jedi Knights Council meetings. As far as side missions on Tython, anything that had to do with Flesh Raiders, I gave to the Jedi Knight, as that story was all about the Flesh Raiders. Everything else I gave to the Counselor. I had both the Knight and Counselor complete Liam Dentry's droid challenges. I didn't see anything wrong with that. I also had both the Knight and Counselor do the trial to meet Kolovish. It's interesting to note that at the end of the Knight's story, Satila asked the Knight about the Twi'lek villagers. There is a light side option which plays out like this. You know the Twi'leks, Padawan. How do you recommend we proceed? We created instability by refusing to help them. That has to change. What happened to Master Orgus is almost unforgivable. But if we do forgive and work with them, it can only improve both our communities. And then there is a dark side option that plays out like this. You know the Twi'leks, Padawan. How do you recommend we proceed? They're a danger we can't afford, and they don't belong here. I say we round them up and ship them anyplace else. Forced resettlement of the Twi'leks runs against everything we stand for. Containment is a better option. At least we know they can't be trusted. We won't put them in a position to betray us again. At this point in the story, either are acceptable, but if you're going for the right answer, the dark side option is more appropriate. As we'll find out later, Kolovish is a key member of the Star Cabal, and she brought the Twi'leks to Tython to spy on the Jedi and ultimately ruin the Order. She is bad news, and this is something that we'll learn much later in the Imperial Agent story. So that's all I have on my search for the Holy Grail this week. Next week, I'll look to get through Droman Kass and Coruscant. This is where things really get interesting as the classes start to come together. But that's it on the big project this week, uh, Droman Kass and hopefully Coruscant next week. And final note for today. Remember when I said at the top of the show I didn't have much time to play? Well, that was true. I did find time, though, to log on and rush over to the GTN because I wanted to see if there were commas separating those shiny numbers. And guess what? I did see commas. They were everywhere. They inserted themselves like every other punctuation in the game. Probably didn't even know they were punctuation. It's glorious, folks. Truly magnificent. And that's the state of the Old Republic for today. Let me cut in the sublight engines and cue the music and congratulate you on surviving another half hour listening to episode 106 of the State of the Old Republic podcast. I'm your host, Ted, and I thank you for tuning in. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, and Buzzsprout. You can also listen to the show directly on the show site, which is sotarpodcast.com, and there is an RSS feed where you can subscribe to the podcast directly. 
If you have a question for the show, you can email me at sotorpodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet your questions to at sotorpodcast or send me a direct message and be sure to follow me on Twitter to get the latest information on the show. Look for episode 107 next week. Until then, remember the Sith Code. Cake is a lie.